If you've got your Bible, remain standing and, and take it, and I'll ask you to turn with me to Matthew 18. Our sermon text for this morning, the words to which I would call your attention are Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. These are the words of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God, we do seek You in this moment. We seek Your power. We seek Your strength. Lord, You are infinitely and eternally and unchangeably powerful. Father, we don't have that power. And so we ask that You would give us from Your infinite resource what we need. Lord, strengthen us. Help us to understand Your Word and apply it faithfully in our lives. Give us the, the humility, O oh Lord, to stand before this world, uh, Word, each of us, and, and find in ourselves a place where we need strengthening and encouragement and, and renewed obedience, and the place where we need conviction and repentance. Uh, would You help us, Father, so that we might live faithfully for Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever worked in a, in a corporate setting, one of the things that you find to be true is that lots of your, lots of your teammates, lots of your co-workers uh, may have a mentality that they want to get ahead. Everybody wants to be the CEO. They have an ambition to, to be on the top. And because of that ambition, oftentimes what you'll find is, is it's cutthroat. Um, friends that you have... Um, will not be your friend if it comes to review time. They will step on you. They will lie and they will cheat and they will steal in order to get ahead, in order to get the notoriety. Um, one of my daughters has had an ambition to work in the theater world and, and someone who has been in that world says you have to be very careful. Uh, when you go for auditions, when you work in place, don't accept food or drinks from others because they will drug you. So that you, not to kill you, but to hamper your performance so that they can take your spot. This happens. Now, we are, uh, in general, by nature, very proud, very arrogant people. We want our way. And oftentimes it doesn't matter. We will, we will bend the rules. We will flex the rules. We will change the rules to suit ourselves to get ahead and hurt others. This happens on college campuses as well. In school, you want to be, you want the notoriety. You are, you're on a football team or a baseball team. You want that position. And so you will hurt someone else in order to take their place. 
And if you think about it, if we're not careful, we can actually teach our children that this is right to do. Because after all, you're special. You're important. Without you, we cannot succeed. How often have we encouraged a hurting child by patting him or her on the head and saying, look, you should always remember how special you are. And in in, in certain degree, that's true. You are special to me. I love you. But there's a sense in which not one of us has a special importance. If we were to go out of existence, would the world miss us? This morning, as we come to Matthew chapter 18, we encounter a group of 12 men who are very ambitious. They want to get ahead. And so they come to Jesus and they say, well, who is the greatest in the kingdom? We notice as we begin the passage, look at Matthew 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, the literal translation there is in that hour. And so we're, we're ending Matthew chapter 17. And what, what have we just noticed? Well, Jesus, who is the king of the earth, has in, in this moment deferred something that was his right. It was his right not to pay the temple tax. And he says, you know what, though? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pay the temple tax for myself and for you, Peter, for the sake of these other men. So he is putting himself aside, not claiming a right that he had so that he might defer to someone else. And it's at that moment that the disciples all gathered around and said, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, Jesus has discussed rank in the kingdom of heaven before. Remember that he called John the Baptist lesser than the least in the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew eleven eleven. Also, he says in Matthew 5, 9, 19, that the man who relaxes one of the least of God's commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. An aspect of the order of God's kingdom is the distinction of superiors and inferiors. We are going to read the fifth commandment in a few weeks. Honor your father and your mother. And so there we remember that in God's kingdom, there are superiors and inferiors. Children are to obey their father and mother. You're to give them honor as your superiors. God ordains a specific order within his kingdom. This extends even to the angelic realm. If you read Daniel chapter 9, there are orders and classes of angels. Therefore, superiority and inferiority are not alien to the kingdom of God. There is rank. Jesus already singled out three disciples, didn't he? And he gave them the special privilege of seeing him in his manifest ascended glory. And he took them apart from all of the other disciples and gave them that special place. Greatness in the kingdom of God, however, is achieved through ambition to Christ's greatness. Think of it this way. To the degree that a man dies to his own ambition and it develops an ambition to make Christ great, that man will be great in the kingdom of heaven. To become great, 
You have to become small. That's what Jesus teaches us in this passage, and we'll see it in three points. The first of which is that selfless ambition determines kingdom citizenship. Selfless ambition determines kingdom citizenship. Notice what Jesus says to the disciples when they ask him who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven in verse 2. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus actually begins here, notice that he doesn't talk about greatness to begin with. He talks about citizenship in general. Who belongs in the kingdom? Who is excluded from the kingdom? And he calls over to him this little child. You can imagine this scene where uh, there perhaps the children are playing outside and the disciples have gathered. Maybe there are a few others there in uh, Peter's home. And in that moment, he calls this little child over and he sits him. This child stands him in their midst. And there they are looking at this real life example. Jesus gives him a, a living example of what he's about to teach. And this, this little child just obediently comes over and stands in their midst. Maybe a, a pretty intimidating moment for a, for a young child. So Jesus gives them this li living example. And notice that he calls them in that moment to repent. He doesn't praise his disciples. He said, if you want to become great in my, t my kingdom, the first thing that you have to do is you have to turn. Now, this is often the word that he used here is not the, the usual word for repent. It simply means usually a physical turning, but it can mean a transformation of heart. So in John chapter 12, we find um, that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So their hardness of heart keeps them from coming to the Lord. We also find in Acts chapter 7, verse 39, that, that, in, that in Israel, our fathers refused to obey God, but thrust Him aside, and in their hearts, what did they do? They turned to Egypt instead. So what Jesus teaches His disciples is He's looking at them, and He says, first of all, your heart needs to undergo a transformation. He accuses them of false motives. You're selfish men. What you need to do is you see those children out there, you need to become like those children. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that I need to become silly? Or that I need to forget everything that I know? What Jesus is teaching him is that they need to take up the attitude of children. Very young children usually are not interested in personal acclaim. They aren't usually concerned about whether it's their name or their friend's name on the billboard. They are content, generally speaking, with what they have. Generally, young children do not boast about their social media influence. And Jesus is teaching them, you have to put yourself aside. Understand that growth in the kingdom of God is not like growth in the kingdom of man. 
And so Jesus doesn't begin by referencing greatness in the kingdom. He referenced entrance into the kingdom. If you would enter the kingdom of God, you must recognize your smallness. God doesn't require anything from you. He doesn't need anything from you. When He presented Himself to Moses, how did He do that? He came as a a fire that burned a bush and yet didn't consume the bush. It didn't require the bush for fuel. And He doesn't require our worship. We don't sustain Him in some way. He doesn't need an ego trip from His people. If we were to cease from existence and stop praising Him altogether, it would not take anything away from God. He would still be perfectly sufficient in and of himself in the kingdom you and I take way more than we contribute we are dependents and Jesus demonstrated to the disciples that in terms of their attitude at that moment they are outside the kingdom And from the outset, we see then how Christ's kingdom conflicts with man's kingdom, don't we? That the value system of Christ's kingdom, how it is the polar opposite of the kingdom of man. By nature, you and I, we are self-promoters. If I do something, I want somebody to say, boy, good job, look what you did. We are so proud of you. But through conversion, we become Christ promoters. So I think this is important. Jesus is not telling you to stop having ambition. He's not saying, stop, sit back, be lazy. He's talking about a transformation of ambition. A transformation of, of my understanding of who I am and my place. You think about the illustration in the very early pages of Genesis. In chapter 11, we have this group of people under the leadership of Nimrod, and they're walking out into a plain of Shinar, and he says, hey, let's stop here, let's build a city, and let's make a name for ourselves. Let's become famous. Let's become powerful. And God came down and he judged them. In the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 12, what what happened? God pulls a man out of relative obscurity by the name of Abram. And he says, Abram, I will make a name for you. God will demonstrate His power. Members of Christ's kingdom are devoted to Christ's glory above their own. They are willing to be considered as nothings in the world. Look how weak you are. Look how powerless you are. And look at how much power we have. Look at our tanks. Look at our artillery. Look at our horses. Look at our chariots. To which the Christian responds, look at my God. Look at my Christ. The man whose bosom burns for personal acclaim is outside the kingdom, Jesus says. This is not compatible. You cannot be a self-promoter and a citizen of Christ's kingdom. So to become as the children simply means to recognize your own insignificance. And that's a good thing. In the kingdom, 
every one of us is more like a child than an adult. In other words, we take way more than we give. We are dependents. You are in need every moment of your life. God does nothing but give and give and give and give to you and to every man. And He doesn't need anything in in return. We are children. So by grace, the Christian man and woman recognizes that he brought nothing into this world and he will take nothing out. By grace, our ego is reduced to nothing. And that's a good thing. But Jesus doesn't tell us to stop having ambition. He tells us what our ambition is transformed into. We go from self-promoters to Christ-promoters. So, secondly, we notice that selfish and selfless Ambition increases kingdom significance. Here it is in short. If you want to be great in Christ's kingdom, become small. Become nothing. Verses 4-6 to six introduce us to three whoever's. Two of them are positive, and the last one is a negative. A very strong negative. And I've included the first two positives under this heading about selfless ambition. Notice that Jesus teaches His disciples what brings greatness. It's humility. The humble man will become a great man. The humble woman, a great woman. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself as this child, this one is the greatest one in the kingdom of the heavens. Notice that what happens there is, to begin with, Jesus pointed, He says, you must become like those children. And the text changes. And now He says, unless you become, you must become like this child. And He points to the one who is in their midst. He pointed to the one who left His playmates in order to heed Christ's command. What does He demonstrate? The one who is great in Christ's kingdom is the one who pursues humble obedience to the commands of Christ. So the first thing that Jesus explains is the pathway to greatness. How do you get there? How do you become something in Christ's kingdom? Well, you pursue humility. This is the very opposite of what you and I know by nature. Nature teaches you that to get ahead, you have to destroy others. To get ahead, you've got to insist on your rights, buddy. Don't you let anybody cut you off in traffic. Don't you take that. Christ teaches you to get ahead by dying to self. And Jesus has already demonstrated this kind of humility. He deferred his own right. He didn't insist on it in that moment for someone else's sake. Now, humility doesn't demand that you never fight for your rights. It doesn't demand that. 
But it does teach you that there are times you don't, and when you don't, in wisdom you delight in it. Through humility, think about this. Through humility, Paul learned contentment. Do you want contentment? Do you want to be satisfied in life? Pursue humility. Paul said in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul learned contentment by emptying himself. And so you can understand that the opposite is also true. The more a man thinks of himself and pursues his own vain glory, the more discontent he will be. Jesus teaches in Matthew 23, the greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus himself was an example of one who exalts himself. Jesus gives an example of one who exalts himself in Luke 18. The self-exalting man is one who considers himself better than others. Self-righteousness is wicked. He said, I tell you, this man, the one who beat his breast, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you see, Jesus doesn't chastise the idea of rank in his kingdom. In the kingdom of Christ, there are great men and there are little men. But the path to greatness is not through self, selfish ambition. Do not become great in, in Christ's kingdom by seeking to harm others. You become great in Christ's kingdom through selfless ambition. The great man in the kingdom thinks very little of himself. In fact, he's never met a greater sinner than himself. The great man thinks great things of God. His problems are not greater than his master. So contentment is his companion, not worry and anxiety. The great man pursues Christ's likeness humbling himself even to the point of personal pain should God call him to it. Here, Jesus does not point to the children as before. He points to this child. And what did this child do? He unquestioningly obeyed Jesus. Thinking little of himself, the great man obeys Christ unreservedly, and demonstrates childlike obedience to his sovereign master. But there's a second thing that Jesus praises here. The reception of children. Notice what he says. Verse uh, 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I think it is impossible for us to read the scriptures and conclude that God doesn't think very much of children. In fact, the very opposite is true. God has a dear and a tender love, especially for 
children. He loves children. In fact, when he makes covenants with his men, he always includes their children. And he says, by the way, all the benefits I'm giving to you belong to your children after you. He loves children. He has an infinite and an eternal and unchanging love for them. And so he says here, Christ does, that whoever receives a child in his name receives him. But what does he mean by this? I think very simply he means to welcome them. Remember that Jesus talked about the, uh, warned the disciples in Matthew 10, and he says, when you go into a town, if they don't receive you, then knock the dust off your feet and leave. And so Jesus is talking about welcoming children. In his name simply means by his authority. Children are to be welcomed in Jesus' name. And I think especially in the church, how would this look? Well, it means we don't, we don't think of children as second-class citizens in Christ's kingdom, do we? We don't think of them as nuisances that we need to put off or distractions that we hope don't bother us in our time of worship. But children are included in Christ's kingdom. He loves them. In fact, I want you to notice, if you uh, looking here in Matthew chapter 18, he, he speaks of children and their special inclusion. Here, if you turn over, look at verse 10. He refers to them again. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And he comes back to them in chapter 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to them. Over and over in this middle part of Matthew's gospel, Jesus emphasizes the love of God for children. They are to be welcomed, they are to be greeted, they are to be cared for, they are to be loved. So that to receive children in Jesus' name is to receive Christ. I think that there are few things that require us to die to ourselves as ministering to and caring for children. Do you agree? It is hard work. They require lots of patience, lots of tenderness, lots of love, lots of care. And what do we do? We have to say things to them over and over and over again. As a parent, you've probably experienced these times where you are counseling a child and in the back of your mind thinking, we have talked about this so many times before. Why do you keep making the same wrong decision? And then as you think about how the energy, the effort, the patience, the love, the kindness, the tenderness, the humility that it requires to minister to children, then suddenly it puts you into mind of what God does for you on a daily basis. He tolerates you. He loves you. He's patient with you. His kindness in Christ goes out to you. He sustains you day after day in spite of the fact that you keep doing the same things that His Word explicitly says not to do. And you don't do the things that He tells you to do. And yet He shows you grace. And then how do you find it in your heart to say, I don't want children. Too much work. 
I think that our culture has taught us to be too consumed with self-care and we don't think about others' care. We think that we deserve everything and nothing bad should ever come to us. I don't deserve the bad stuff. Few things require us to die to ourselves like ministering to children. And yet Jesus says, when you receive a child in My name, you receive Me. So what will you find in a flourishing church, in a flourishing community, in a flourishing nation? It will be a nation, a community, a church that loves children. Loves them. It doesn't kill them. It doesn't treat them like nothing's in the world. Who wants one of those? I have ambitions. And yet Christ builds His kingdom as one generation trains another how to be devoted to Christ. This is how the kingdom goes forth. One, one generation teaches the next. And one generation teaches the next. The reason our nation is crumbling is because of the failure of parents to teach their children to live godly lives. Perhaps then to welcome a child placing the blessing of Christ upon him, you in turn receive Christ's blessing. But the inverse is also true. Whoever rejects children rejects Christ. Thirdly, lastly, selfless Ambition prevents severe punishment. Selfless ambition prevents severe punishment. Just as there are, there are ranks of greatness in the kingdom of Christ. The man who dies to himself, the man who promotes Christ and gives all of his labors to promoting Christ in his work, in his family, his employment, everywhere he goes, that man would be great in the kingdom. But here we know this. Notice that there are also levels of punishment. For some, the punishment of hell will be more severe. And notice what Jesus says in this final refrain in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What a picture. Um, as we were walking around Peru, there are just periodically you see these, these huge millstones, and they are they're stone, um, obviously, millstone, uh, with a hole cut in the middle. At this one that Jesus refers to, in particular, it's not in the translation here, but he refers to one that has to be moved by a donkey. These are, these are huge. And so he, he refers to the punishment of the man that leads a little one astray as having this millstone hung around his neck. And can you imagine being tossed off the boat and going headfirst down to the bottom and hang, hanging there with your feet above you? It's a terrifying idea. This is the negative. Jesus then here he demonstrates God's love for his covenant children that he would intensify the punishment for anyone who leads them astray. The man who harms children, the man who leads children astray must expect that Christ will harm him. There is no defender of children like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the third aspect of our selfless ambition is that that you and I seek to conduct ourselves in a way that is always considerate of the little eyes who are watching. I always seek to lead God's children to God to whom they belong. So we ought to understand that Christ has a special hatred for those who give bad examples to his children. Maybe one reason that Jesus launched into this discussion of sin's causes is based on the disciples' behavior. He's saying, you listen to me right now. What you're doing, crowding around me, and not thinking about these little eyes that are watching you, and you asking me who's going to be great in the kingdom, and you're not concerned about these souls, you are providing them with a bad example. This is a warning. Beware. The kingdom is not a contest of greatness. Looking to Christ, we pursue humility and smallness. In other words, we adopt John the Baptist's mentality. I must decrease, he must increase. That's the ambition of a godly man and woman. I want to make much of Christ. I don't want the accolades for myself. I don't need the attaboys. What I want is men to love Christ. The result of my efforts is that men love Christ. They turn to Christ. They repent of their sins. And especially giving myself over. Giving and giving and giving just the way that God does. Especially for the sake of children. And despising anyone who provides them with a bad example, defending them, supporting them, encouraging them, raising them. This is the future of Christ's kingdom. Greatness in Christ's kingdom comes from adopting a selfless attitude that sacrificially serves Christ's children. You know, the world is full of men who are willing to step on other men to get ahead. It's full of men like that, full of people. You meet them in Walmart. Maybe you've been one of them. That's why they have self-checkouts now. So, Um, There's their entire YouTube channels devoted to Karens, right? These are the ones who always insist on their rights. They know what their rights are better than you do. And they never miss an opportunity to insist on it. These are the ones who think they are something when in fact you are, you're nothing. These are the men who are not citizens of Christ's kingdom. When Christ draws you into his kingdom by his spirit, he gives you a right perspective on yourself. Suddenly you realize that you are as helpless to save yourself as a nursing infant. All you can do is cry to the Lord. Help me. Save me. In the kingdom, you make it your life's work to get out of the way of Christ's glory. Your personal ambition is to make Christ great. And the more you pour yourself into this ambition, the greater your stature in the kingdom grows. These folks are those who make much of children. Children are much. Children are to be cherished. 
Children are to be protected. The man who does not cherish children does not cherish Christ. And we keep careful watch on ourselves lest we give them any reason to wander astray from the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we consider this endeavor to humility, Lord, we, we confess that we don't have the strength for it. That we have a, a culture around us that, that teaches us to pursue personal greatness. Personal greatness by always insisting on our rights. Personal great, greatness by stepping on other people, intentionally hurting them, not worrying about the feelings of other people. And yet you call us to forgiveness. Painful, hard forgiveness. You call us to serve those who are our very enemies. Lord, how can we do this apart from the work of your Holy Spirit? We can't. And so we ask, O oh Father, that you, you remind us how insignificant we are. You don't need us. If we didn't exist, you wouldn't miss us. We contribute nothing to our salvation but sin. You do it all. Help us to have a right perspective on ourselves, O oh Lord. And help us to selfishly pursue the glory of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.